This podcast is sponsored by Bring Freedom. To learn more about how to prevent and end human trafficking in your own community, please visit bringfreedom.org and join our partnership program. Hey guys, welcome to the Persons with Lived Experience podcast, inspiring stories for unprecedented times with Dixie and Zona. Living in that environment, my sleep cycles were almost inverted because I could never sleep at night. And uh, sometimes I would get some sleep during the day, sometimes I couldn't. And um, they would use that against me. Another thing that they used to tell everybody that I knew that, oh, she's mentally unstable. She doesn't sleep properly. Um, And uh, there was a lot of things that caused me anxiety around sleep, even when I was little. Um, Some things that my mother would say um, basically convinced me that, like, if you sleep, you can die in your sleep and never wake up. This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take precautions for yourself. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dixie, and I'm all about joy, justice, and fair trade fashion. I'm an anti-trafficking advocate, mom of many, and passionate worshiper. And I am Zona. I'm a writer, speaker, a person with lived experience of human trafficking and homelessness. I'm a tiny house enthusiast and a cereal foodie. Today, we have with us Sophie Marie. She's a Lebanese-American millennial author, life coach, and podcast host. Uh, She teaches people how to take their power back after abuse and adversity, especially women and immigrants like herself. Welcome, Sophie. We're so happy to have you. Do you like to go by Sophie or Sophie Marie? Sophie is perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, we would love to hear uh, more about your story and get to know you a little bit. All right. So um, thank you so much for this beautiful introduction. So I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about my background. I was born in Lebanon and I came to the U.S. at 14. And the reason why I do what I do, the reason why I'm doing this kind of um, work and awareness and all of that is because I grew up in a toxic family environment. I have a narcissistic mother. She was extremely abusive to my father and to me. I'm an only child, thank goodness, because uh, I can only imagine how much more of a mess this would be if other people were involved, other kids were involved. Um, But I'm an only child. And the best way I can describe uh, the environment I grew up in was it was a cult. It was like a cult. It was not a religious cult or anything, but it was almost like the same principles that you find in cults were applied to the family environment I was growing up in. The secrecy, the not going against anybody else, especially the person at the center of the cult, which was my mother. Um, Never speaking up, never denouncing anything that they did. You never involve outsiders, which allows for a lot of abuse to be perpetrated and it's the silence that allows that to go on and um, 
So I would like to clarify for anybody who's listening who is not familiar with Lebanese culture. It's not your stereotypical Middle Eastern culture where, you know, here in the U.S. we tend to think that all Middle Eastern women are oppressed, covered from head to toe. It's a very monolithic idea that people tend to have of the Middle East. And I, <laughs> I always love to joke about the crazy things that people have asked me being a Middle Eastern person. Um, people have assumed things about um, me practicing a certain religion. People have assumed that I don't eat pork or that I don't drink or that I don't do a whole bunch of things. And um, I just want to say like the Middle East is a very diverse place. Yeah. Every country, even Lebanon is a diverse country. There's 18 different religions. and. Uh, so many different cultures, almost every family is like a different culture of its own. And my own family, we had some words that nobody else sees outside the family. And that also adds to the whole cult experience um, or cult-like experience, I want to say. Um, there was a common, almost like a microculture. So I just want to clarify when I mentioned my culture of origin, I'm not denouncing um communal cultures i'm not denouncing middle eastern cultures i just want to be very clear on that this is not me bashing lebanese culture or middle eastern or arab cultures um it's just sharing my own experience and at times i'm going to share how some aspects of my culture of origin have affected this experience so um um, there was still some patriarchy and misogyny that was very um, instilled in me growing up. It was the idea that, um, oh, you're going to, you know, something bad is going to happen to you if you dress a certain way. You have to behave a certain way around men. Um, like women who had double PhDs had to dumb themselves down around men so that, you know, the men don't feel bad about themselves. And that's something I always refused to do. And um, I was um, I was lucky to not be physically abused or on a regular basis, even though there was some physical violence. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was emotionally abused from a very young age. Uh, my mother has a lot of mental health issues. She is abusive. She is narcissistic. She is malignant. Um, and a lot of those things happened because she has her own issues she has unresolved trauma there's generational trauma that has never been dealt with and i'm not saying this as a way to excuse her but it's important to understand some of the causes that um have um, uh, that have led to those behaviors and actions towards me and towards my father and towards other people that i love so um she was always extremely abusive towards me in the sense of giving me the silent treatment and um even on the smallest things, like if I wanted to wear the blue shirt at school and she wanted me to wear the red shirt, you know, or um, if I wanted to see a friend and she just wanted me to go to one of her doctor's appointments with her and sit in the waiting room and not do anything except be with her. Like I was not even allowed to take a book at the time. She had very arbitrary punishments. Um, she would take away anything that I found joy in. And I had a very isolated childhood because not only did I not have siblings, but she always kept me very sheltered. It's not like, oh, go play outside. There was none of that. Like I was afraid to cross the street until I was 15 years old. I was never allowed to roam around with neighborhood kids. Whenever I would make a friend, she would sit me down, tell me how they were not good enough for us because 
she was deluded again this cult Charles's family environment they were deluded into believing that they were the best family that ever was that they were practically royalty and um you know nobody was good enough for us um she had a very classist um view of society especially of lebanese society um so it was um it was a very um controlling environment that i grew up in i felt like i had literally zero freedom and um one thing that i experienced early on was some kind of a mob mentality from the entire family unit which meant that um most of uh, the activities outside the home i grew up in or the house it wasn't really a home but the house i grew up in was um going to my to visit my mother's side of the family at their own homes and there were family gatherings every week um, and uh, if my mother wanted to uh, you know put me in my place she would tell people at those family gatherings that i disobeyed her that i called her name um, one time she said that i called her a slut and i had no idea what that meant back then I knew that she would call me that. Um, and the word for slut is Arabic is way more vulgar than the word for slut in English. So it's something that you don't even say out loud, you know? Mm. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, she told the family that I did things like that and everybody would automatically turn against me. And I remember one time, because some of the family members were more religious than others. Mm -hmm. um, I was taken to church um, because my family is Catholic, I was taken to church and I was told that I needed to confess having hurt my mother. And I was just like, I felt such a sense of guilt and shame, even though I hadn't done anything. She had just um, claimed that I had done that and the whole family was giving me the silent treatment. And um, the other thing was that my father was my parents had a very fraught marriage. They did not get along and he was never really, she had isolated him from his own family, but she was still seen as an outsider in the maternal side of the family. And um, I was also seen as an outsider in a way because I had my father's last name and mm -hmm. I was tall and I looked like him more than I looked like my mother. And he was extremely tall. Um, uh, people on my mother's side of the family were for the most part short, but he was almost seven feet tall and I'm almost six feet tall. So uh, we were, you know, sticking out as the two giants and, uh, uh, you know, it was, um, it was kind of weird. Like I always felt like I never belonged. And um, when I turned 14, so that was an interesting time because I had started to, becoming a teenager, I had started to grow some confidence. I had started to make friends in school, like good friends. Mm -hmm. um, I had started to figure out what I wanted to do in my life, where I wanted to go to school, what I wanted to study. And my mother had an, a job, a profession that she wanted me to go in that I did not want to go into at all. But she wanted me to go in because she had a relative who did that job and who lived in the U.S. And um, in her idea, that job made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And um, her plan was that I would go to school to train for that profession specifically. And then I would come to the States 
I would make her a lot of money and I would be her cash cow and her retirement plan. And uh, just to give you an idea of how uh, my mother's mindset was when it came to me, um, she refused, she always refused to get a driver's license, even when I was little. She never drove, and that's why I was always, you know, stuck in the house mm -hmm. and pretty much isolated from kids my age and other people. She always refused to learn how to drive because she would tell my father, when Sophie turns 18, she's going to be my driver. She's going to get a driver's license and she's going to be my driver. So um, <clears throat> we're, <laughs> we're talking about a woman who uh, also refused to learn English when we came to the States because she expected that I would be her translator. But um, before I go too far into that direction, let me get back to um, the moment where we moved to the States. So um, that year I had turned 14 and the relationship between my parents had become absolutely disastrous. Uh, my father wanted to get a divorce and I knew that because I eavesdropped in one of their conversations. And just clarifying, amongst Lebanese Christians, divorce is the biggest no-no. Like you say in a bad relationship and you cheat. Cheating is more acceptable, more socially acceptable than getting a divorce. And the moment you get a divorce, your children are considered illegitimate. Like we're talking uh, uh, bastards, Jon Snow, all of that, sure. even worse than that, you know? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> your children are considered um, the, you know, like at the bottom caste yeah. of society, I want to say. So, um, so that was my worst fear because I had a classmate who was divorced and people made her life unbearable in school. And she had um, uh, her father, she had the, you know, like the privilege of um, like having a father who was European and not Lebanese. So when you're married to a foreigner, it's more acceptable. But if it's, if it's between two Lebanese parents, divorce is the biggest no-no. Um, it's still that do, uh, do you part, even though, uh, you know, everybody's cheating on everybody. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, they made her life hell. And then she ended up moving to the States a couple of years before I did. So uh, I did not want this to become my life. And I did not want to be the kid of divorced parents. It was the worst thing that could happen to me. And I knew that my family would treat me differently if my parents got a divorce. So, um, Anyway, it's not like they were treating you super well anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like they would, um, they, they would be nice on certain occasions and they mm -hmm. love to later on in my adulthood, they love to use those examples as, oh, we spoiled you. Oh, we were so nice to you. Oh, all of that. But I'm like, no, because I don't need you to buy me things. I just need you to be reliable family members and mm -hmm. I need you to be there for me. And I need you to, you know, like if I go to you because I, I want to talk to you about something, um, like again, not trying to go into a million different directions, but um, one time I went to my godmother because I wanted to talk to her about contraception and I wanted to have, I was not sexually active at the time, but I wanted to have that backup because I was trying to be responsible. And um, what does she do? She goes and she tells my mother about it behind my back. And then my mother comes back to me and she's like, uh, really, you're, you know, slut shames me and all of that. And 
and my mother it was not even me being sexually active was not even a matter of like honor or culture or anything like that it had nothing to do with it it had to do with the fact that if i got into a relationship if i fell in love if i um got involved with somebody else she would not be the center of my life anymore and she would lose control over me so um back to um uh when i the year we came here uh i'm starting my parents are not speaking that entire year that entire school year my parents are not speaking my father is traveling every now and then to dubai to do some work over there he works in advertising and um they are not communicating they're using me to communicate and by that point i'm mostly okay with it because at least they're not arguing at least they're not like um i'm not having anxiety because there's always doubting in this house and i'm afraid my mother is going to kill my dad and she was physically violent with him she even used me to destroy his possessions when i was very little um so i don't have to worry about that that whole year i'm um you know starting to come into myself and discover who i am discover what i'm interested in so she tells my mother tells me so my mother tells me let's go to the states this summer we have relatives living there mm-hmm. let's go to the states and uh it's a whole process to apply for a visa which is normally not really given to uh people from middle eastern and arab countries but we have um we have the privilege of being christians not in practice but you know in lebanon your religion is like ethnicity in the united states so um think of it that way um we go to the us embassy apply for a visa the entire maternal side of the family is involved in this but guess who doesn't know my dad Oh, he oh has no. no idea. He has no idea. Um he has no idea that we're planning to move to the states. So <laughs> um my mother is sneaking things out. Um she she is sneaking things out of the house. She is um she tells me if you tell him he's going to um basically contact uh the police and forbid me from taking you outside the country because he is an asshole and because he doesn't want you to enjoy yourself and do anything you know do anything fun and he wants to lock you up this entire summer and um you know I'm 14 year old at that time all I'm thinking is we're going to be staying in our relative's condo where there's a pool in the building we don't have to beg parents to drive us or arrange a taxi to take us um to the pool it's in the building yeah. and uh there's wifi we had dialogue connection and that whole year um my mother was not paying the phone bill and my father did not want to pay the phone bill that was their war um not paying the the house phone bill because they both had cell phones but i didn't have one so um i was the i was the one who had to deal with not having like a telephone or internet or connectivity in the house mm-hmm. most of the time so um i was thinking wifi pool shopping oh my god yes i would like to do it and uh, i was brainwashed about my father uh i was brainwashed enough that i believe what my mother told me and i remember the last time i sat down with him i was 2 seconds away from telling him that she was planning to do this she was planning to take me to the states for the summer 
but something told me don't do it uh, because if you do it and if he confronts her about that or if he stops it, the fallout is going to be on you. So it was a lose situation in any case. So we go to the States. We tell my dad that we are staying with my grandparents and um, we travel. My mother and I travel. And uh, the entire time, she's almost a 50-year-old, and I have to babysit her throughout uh, two different airports, actually three different airports, um, because I have to take care of everything. All the while, she's micromanaging me. Um, she's refusing to go to the gate that we had to go to because they changed our gate at the last moment, and we almost got on a plane to Timbuktu, and it's, it was literally Timbuktu, so the capital of Mali. So we almost ended up in Mali instead of you know, Washington, but um, eventually we make it. And uh, after that first night, the next day, she makes me call my father and she's like, you need to tell him that we're here. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, you're not gonna tell him? So she calls him and she starts dauntingly telling him, guess where we are? And he's like, where are you? And she's like, we're in Washington. And he's like, what? And he is absolutely shocked. And basically that entire summer turns into a war between my parents. And be careful what you wish for, because I was yeah. wishing for 24 seven internet access. Um, <laughs> it turned into a war between my parents. I barely went to the pool that summer because I was stuck in that apartment the whole entire time. Um, talking to my parents, uh, you know, intercepting emails from my father, intercepting emails from all the people he had emailed, telling them that this crazy woman kidnapped my kid. And basically, like, um, they both started, um, you know, emailing accusations about one another and doing a whole bunch of things and putting me in the middle of that. And there were always phone calls coming to my mother from people who were telling her, how could, how could you do this? And then she would turn on the waterworks and literally wink at me while she was turning on the waterworks and telling those people lies about my father being abusive towards her and towards me. Yeah. And the irony was that she kept telling them we had to leave because I was afraid that he was going to sexually assault her. And I want to say my father never, ever did anything like that. Mm-hmm. But my mother started telling people that she did things like that. And um, and she almost convinced me that he, she convinced me that he would do some of the most horrific things uh, to me and that she had to do this to save my life. And um, uh, she actually used the book that I had bought the year before. Um, I think it's called Never Without My Daughter by Bessie Mahmoudi. I think maybe you might be familiar with that book. They made a movie out of it. It's about this American woman who marries an Iranian man during the Iranian revolution. And he takes, she and her daughter go with him to visit relatives in Iran. And then he takes the daughter and forbids them from, or he forbids him, the, his wife and his daughter from coming back. And then the wife has to smuggle her daughter outside of Iran to go back to the States. And it's like a multiple year journey. So. My mother was literally comparing herself to that woman who wrote that book. And I was like, a part of me was like, no, that's not true, because you're literally the one who kidnapped me. But, um, but she, um, 
she kept saying that she did it for me and she did it to protect me and so on. Except um, I started noticing within a couple of weeks that now that my father was out of the picture, I was in the spotlight to her abusive behavior, to her abusive and controlling behavior. And she could not tolerate the fact that I was growing up. She could not tolerate the fact that she always hated teenagers. She always told me to never become a teenager as if I had any control over that. And <laughs> I know, right? Oh, gosh. Um, and uh, she, she was just starting to show things that I could no longer ignore. I was no longer in that space where I could be in denial. And that was absolutely scary and devastating because I realized that she was, um, she had literally rigged my father to react the way he reacted. And I saw him as evil when he, um, when he reacted that way. Um, I was mad at him. He, I thought that she had hacked into one of my emails, which if he had, I would understand because you know, you want to get some information about where your daughter is and all of that. And um, she, um, she basically turned me against him completely. And I came to a point where I was like, I want nothing to do with him. And um, that's when she decided that, okay, we're going to stay here. And I don't know how much of that had been planned before we left. Yeah. Um, but we ended up starting a procedure with a lawyer and the plan at first was to go to Canada, but we got denied a visa to go to Canada and that lawyer had a completely twisted way of getting us into Canada, which now that I think back is probably not the most lawful way, but um, we ended up deciding to, or maybe they had already decided that, I don't know if they did the Canada thing as it's done. I, there's a lot that I still don't know. Yeah. but. We ended up staying in the States and thankfully I got a green card um, within a couple of years after this had happened. So I'm extremely grateful for that because um, I was now in a country where I had rights as a human yep. being and I was here. Um, I just want to clarify, no human is illegal. I don't believe in this whole, oh, you're here illegally and so on. But I was very, very lucky and privileged to not be undocumented. And I just want to say right now, my heart goes to every single person who is um, undocumented, especially if you're living in an abusive household and they're using this against you. So it took me a year and a half to get a green card. And for this entire time, my mother's, um, blackmail against me her way to control me was she told she told me that i was here illegally she told me that i was here illegally she lied to me about um the details of the green card procedure and i had no idea you know my english was not as good as it is today i had you know i didn't know that there was a website where you could go and get that information and i was 14 at the time i did not understand all yeah. that stuff back then so mm -hmm. It was very confusing for me. And every time I tried to ask questions, it was either don't worry about this, that's not your business. But hey, if you're, um, you know, every time there would be a fight, she would say, I'm going to send the cops, your, the cops to your school. I'm going to call immigration on you. You're going to be deported. Uh, you're going to be sent back to Lebanon in, you know, in or a jumpsuit on a plane, shackled like a criminal. And uh, when you get there, your father is going to be able to do whatever he wants with you.
And she had literally convinced me that my father would kick me out, that he would sell my organs, that whole bunch of uh, crazy ass stuff. Sorry. Um, so, um, so yeah, um, it was uh, very scary to be in that situation. Uh, I never knew whenever she and I had a fight, I never knew when I went to school, if I was going to get arrested, if that was it. And she really used that power that she had over me back then. You know, I, I was extremely terrified and it came to a point where I was so anxious. I was so scared. I was so depressed that a part of me didn't want to live anymore. And I got to a point where I had to talk to somebody about that. And I found an adult that I could trust. Mm -hmm. And this person saved my life. I don't want to give more identifying details, but this person saved my life and I will forever be grateful to them. So, um, and it wasn't even, you know, like that much, like I was never taken away from that environment or anything like that, but somebody listened to me and somebody heard me for the first time and didn't say, oh, but your parents bought you this, so you should be grateful. Oh, but your mother brought you to the state, so you should be grateful. Oh, but your mother is paying for your school, so you should be grateful. Um, oh, you should obey your mother. And if you have any issues with your mother, it's your fault. Because that's everything that I had heard before. Yes. So um, somebody listened to me and had my back. And that helped make me look forward to something. Somebody believed in me. Somebody told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And um, that helped me push through, uh, do well academically. Bring Freedom's live anti-trafficking equipping event is coming up March 30th through April 1st. Sign up for the Vision and Intention Challenge today. You don't want to miss this. Especially, you know, I was living in a very stressful environment at home. Um, my mother was emotionally abusive and there was a male relative that we were living with who was uh, sexually abusive towards me. And this is very scary for me to speak about because a part of me is afraid of retaliation. A part of me is afraid um, of any consequences, but I'm going to say this and there is no going back. I was sexually assaulted as a minor. I never spoke up about it to anyone outside of the family because I knew that um, like something told me, okay, this is America, they take this seriously. And mm -hmm. I was still gaslighting myself. I was still pretending that it wasn't, that, it wasn't happening. I told my mother about it. And the first time she told me I was lying, the second time when she witnessed something, she said that it was because I dressed a certain way, I behaved a certain way, and I begged her. I remember begging her to tell me, what did I do? Yeah. What did I do? Like, how exactly was I behaving? How, how exactly was I dressing? I was dressing like a nun. And um, because I was trying, because it had been ingrained in me that it's the way women dress that dictates the consequences of such actions from men and also other women. Let's not say that women are always the victims, men are always the perpetrators. It's, um, it, gender is not determining. Um, and also we're, you know, we don't have to be on the gender binary, binarism, like mm -hmm. persons of any gender or no gender can be 
both victims and perpetrators, just clarifying that. But, um, but that was not what I had been taught. And so, um, so yeah, it was uh, a bit of a nightmare. And um, I, the closer I got to adulthood, the more determined I was to get out. But, you know, you don't deprogram yourself that easily. And um, uh, I went to college for one year. Okay. And uh, I was treated like a pariah because I went away for college and I wanted to go away. And the only reason why she allowed me to even apply to this university because I needed her signature in order for the school to send my application was, uh, I don't know if it's like this in every school, but my school was had a particular system to it. So I don't know what's, you know, if it's still the case today, but back then your parents had to approve your college application. So she, um, she only allowed me to apply to this school, which was outside of the area we lived in because she thought she would use my dorm room as her secondary residence. And she thought that she would come over every weekend, even invite her friends every weekend to my dorm room at this city that she wanted. She actually liked going to that city a lot. So, oh, sure. so yeah. Um, Free hotel, she, right? Yeah, exactly. It was supposed to be her hotel, secondary residence. So uh, I got into this school and um, I attended this school for the first year. And um, I was really treated like a pariah by the whole family. And I was 18 and I had no idea how to be an adult. Sure. I had no idea what to do with myself. I had no idea. I was dealing with so much um, I guess now I know that it's trauma, but I was waking up in the middle of the night, having anxiety every time the door would slam. Um, I got into an abusive relationship with somebody I met in high school, mm. and that was an emotionally abusive relationship. And uh, my entire family, like, if my mother decided to give me the silent treatment because I was not on the, on the phone with her 24 seven, the entire family would follow suit. And it was the worst, um, it was one of the worst experiences of my life because I was so determined to do well in college, just like I had done in high school. And everything was falling apart around me. I was depressed, even though I would not admit it at the time because my mother, my mother played the depression card a lot and she used it as an excuse for everything, including being violent towards me. So I did not want, um, to have that label placed on me. And um, a lot of things happened and I ended up not going back to school. I ended up moving back into that house where my mother lived. Mm -hmm. And I, I had no idea financially what to do in terms of how do I figure out how to get back to school. I did not have that financial education and right. I did not have that financial guidance because I did not know anybody outside of my immediate um, Lebanese bubble mm -hmm. and uh, people were not people who could have shared that information with me were not sharing it with me so right. I had no idea how to get back to school I had no mm -hmm. idea what to do and all of a sudden after having put so much stock into this idea that the moment you turn 18 everything's gonna be fine you get your freedom you get everything that you want and you are capable so you're gonna make it happen 
I felt like everything had just shattered and I had no way out. And every time I tried to find a way out, um, I had started a fashion blog at one point and I was making, I had started making money from it for affiliate marketing. And I remember one night I sold one of these or somebody bought using one of my affiliate links, somebody bought one of these Alexander McQueen scars that had the skulls on them. And they were very popular in the early, um, early 2010s, I guess. Right. Um, and I went and I told my mother about it. And instead of her, instead of her being happy for me, she says, you are a complete narcissist. Um, how, like, you are a megalomaniac. You really think that you're going to make money from a blog and so on. And that's just like, it has such an influence on me that I stopped taking care of that blog as well. And I'm spiritual, I believe in energy and when something affects you a certain way, um, like when somebody has a lot of power over you, they can affect your energy, they can affect how you, uh, how things, how you view things and your attitude on things in life. So, um, so um, my 20s were struggle. Yeah. Uh, I became homeless because I got kicked out of that house um, and uh, my mother put together basically a very violent incident that I was physically assaulted and I was kicked out of that house. Mm -hmm. And uh, the family made me their pariah basically. They made me the problem one and I'm pretty sure that my mother was so happy that she was no longer seen as the problem. But I basically ended up going back and forth into that environment as my alternative to, uh, to homelessness. Sure. Um, I was struggling to find a job because I didn't have, I did not complete my degree. Yeah. And um, I didn't really have that many professional connections. And uh, whenever I tried to um, get something in, you know, any place that I worked at was connected to the expat community and to my family. And there was a moment where I was expecting to get promoted in the company that, was, that I was working at um, because I had the skills and I was a permanent resident in the United States. So I, I expect to be promoted. And next thing I know, they're eliminating my position and come to find out somebody spoke to my mother who spoke to somebody else who spoke to somebody else to the HR person and basically just her depicting me as this mentally unstable person um, weaving some truth with a lot of lies so she used the fact that I was a lesbian against me mm. um, and uh, she told people that I was doing drugs and I, that I was a prostitute and that I was sleeping with men and women left and right and I was just like, you use one piece of truth, but you turned it into a lie and you made it believable enough by reading more things that for homophobic people, they would think, oh, she has to be on drugs to be a lesbian, you know, or she has to be mentally unstable because they still think that homosexuality is um, a mental, mental, know, a mental disorder. Yeah. So um, it was a lot of... Um, chaos. It was a lot of um, stress. Yeah. And there were times where I was able to stabilize myself. But then I was still tethered to relatives. 
I still wanted their approval. I still wanted them to stop seeing me as um, the hot mess that I was labeled as. And I wanted them to approve of what I was doing. And I guess that I knew deep down that whatever I was doing, they were taking pictures, taking evidence, taking screenshots and sending it to my mother, every single thing that I was doing. And I found out later on that it was true because she would love to throw these facts just to show me that nobody was really on my side. So um, I guess that um, me wanting my family's approval, my relatives' approval, um, was the thing that kept me in that state of chaos, in that state of instability of managing to get a roof over my head that was not theirs managing to get something going for myself and then losing it all at once and then um there was a lot of financial abuse and sabotage um and uh i just want to clarify that 10 years ago i actually stopped speaking to my mother i saw her for the last time uh 10 years ago a little over 10 years ago actually and uh, I have not had any physical contact. We haven't been in the same room or in the same place together at all in the past 10 years. And while I was trying to rebuild my life, while still having relatives in my life, obviously, who were telling for everything that I was doing, she was going around snaring me to anybody who would listen. And anybody that I knew, anybody, even connections that I had forged on my own, she would find somebody who knew them because in our expat, bu expat bubble, um, everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was very hard for me to rebuild myself all the while knowing that this sort of shadow of all the, all the stuff they were telling about me was following me. And it was hard to dissociate myself from that identity that they had made up about me. Every time that I spoke to relatives on Skype, they would be like, are you doing something bad? Are you okay? Always from this place of worry. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm just trying to survive. I'm not doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, I never did drugs in my life. I never did anything bad in my life. And um, I was always accused of doing, even if I had a glass of wine, it would turn into, oh, she's an alcoholic, you know? So um, I, um, I want to say about five years ago, five, six years ago, um, I had started rebuilding my life once again. And um, I agreed to a phone call with my mother. And the first thing she asked me is she makes a comment about my weight because that has always been something that she loved to comment about. Um, and I know that discussing weight can be very triggering. So um, I'm going to spare your audience from that. But uh, just imagine the worst ways that somebody can use somebody else's weight against them. Um, and then she asked me if she can move in with me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I haven't spoken to you for five years. And this is the first thing you asked me. And I was just speaking to her at that point just to appease the family, just to earn their approval. I knew that everybody got nicer to me and started using pet names once I started speaking to her. Oh, cool. And um, during that time, I was in the States. My dad was in Lebanon. I had gone to visit him one time because we had actually reconciled. I forgot to mention, we had reconciled. Once I realized how toxic she was, I actually reached out to him on Facebook and we started rebuilding a relationship. So I went to visit my dad in Lebanon and the moment she found out, the moment she found out, 
she went there and she started lawsuits she used a very corrupt legal system i want you to forget everything that you know about the u.s legal system and think of the most corrupt thing you can think of and that's the lebanese legal system mm -hmm. and she started using that somebody was funding somebody in the family had was funding her efforts to do that she did everything she could to destabilize my father for four years sorry three years and um five years ago that ended up with him having a fatal heart attack because she had managed to take almost everything from him and she had stressed him out so much with all these court hearings that he would somehow never show up to but he would always she spread so many lies about him she spread lies about him and how he treated me she spent she's like she said so many things that really damaged him yeah. and i wake up my morning and a relative calls me and tells me to come over and they're like your dad had a heart attack and up until today i don't know if that's the truth i don't know if uh i I mean, a lot of people have told me this is what has happened, but a part of me is like, there is something fishy to this. Yeah. And I wouldn't put it past her to have done something. Um, I don't know if uh, he did something himself, to himself because, you know, all the stress she put him under, I would understand that. But all of a sudden, I've lost my dad. Yeah. And I felt, thank you, I felt alone in the world. And my relatives are not even giving me time to grieve they just are hounding me so i would give them access to i would sign a power of attorney over everything that my father had left oh. so that she could take it they are hounding me they're blackmailing me they're threatening to take me out um <clears throat> i had gone back to live with them because again it was on and off on and off like my last alternative to homelessness is going back to be in an abusive household where I'm getting sexually assaulted and abused on a daily basis. So that winter was one of the darkest of my life. Mm -hmm. I was literally um, turning the light off in my bedroom, like keeping it off so that they would not, they would forget about me yeah. and not come yeah. and start fights that would inevitably end up with, we're gonna throw you out, pack your bags. And then they forget about it, you know, but they keep me in that state of fight or flight. So, it was the worst time of my life. And um, this is where I get a little spiritual. I started to feel some kind of a life inside me because uh, everything was turned off outside. I had literally, I was not leaving the house. I was not doing anything. I was trying so hard to disappear. And this is where something started telling me, there is something better for you out there. And I don't know how this happened because I felt so hopeless. I was isolated from my friends and they had moved on with their lives. Um, I think at some point, like people stop understanding why there is so much drama in your life and you always have to explain different culture, different system and so on. People get tired of that. So I was completely isolated and I even tried to reach out to a domestic violence organization. And the moment I told them that my abusers were not an intimate partner, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they were like, sorry, we can't help you go to a homeless shelter uh, or call 911. And I knew that if I called 911 to that house, they wouldn't do anything. They would come and my relatives would pretend that everything is fine. And then I would deal with the consequences. I would have, I would probably, you know, God knows what would happen.
Mm -hmm. so, um, so yeah, I was in this state of complete hopelessness, complete darkness. And then I just started holding on to hope. And I started using information that I had found online. I found an online support community. Um, I slowly managed to get out. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time. It took going back and forth again. It took um, really a belief that was almost supernatural in nature that this is going to change. This is going to change no matter how terrible things are right now. Something is going to change and I have to believe it. And I have to hold on to this hope even if everything looks absolutely hopeless right now. And I'm not saying spirituality or religion are always the solution to everything, but I held on and it ended up working out. And uh, it took me a couple of years of, again, back and forth and trying to figure things out and trying to, um, you know, be able to leave permanently. And then shortly before the pandemic, I left permanently mm -hmm. because um, they did something that they did several things, actually, that really highlighted to me how bad they were. That really highlighted to me how abusive they would be. My mother was, I was talking to her again on the phone back then, and she was so emotionally abusive, such a liar. Um, telling horrible things about me and um, trying to convince me of everything that she was saying, trying to convince me that I was schizophrenic because, or that I had schizophrenia because I spoke out about her being abusive to me. Um, and so I was like, they had sunk to a new low. And at that point, what they had done was impossible for me to ignore. So that's when I was like, okay, I'm blocking everybody on Facebook, even people who I thought that I would never cut out of my life, the people that they still had, still had access to me. I was like, nope, you're out, you're out, you're out. You really don't have my back. I'm nobody to you. I'm not even family member to you anymore. I'm just a scapegoat. I'm just somebody that you can use and abuse. And I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And uh, the moment I cut them out, there was a little bit of chaos, but within a couple of weeks, things started to get better. And when I yeah. say get better, it's not like it was before when something good happens and then it's followed by um, 10 bad things that happen. You know, that completely negates all the good stuff that has happened. That was uh, me putting effort into things and actually getting something back out of it mm -hmm. and building mm -hmm. upon that. And um, it was really difficult to rebuild your whole life at 28 after having wasted your first decade of adulthood on surviving. It was really hard for me. It was, I compared myself to people who had degrees and all I had was a high school degree. Even though I did amazing academically in high school, it still wasn't recognized as anything. And um, I was really trying to build myself up and thankfully, by that time, I had moved away to a different city and I had cut contact with almost everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, I was starting to really get better and do better. I found myself falling in love with a wonderful person and getting into the first healthy relationship of my life. And um, I really found myself 
entering a powerful healing process. And it's kind of funny because I felt like I was blooming for the first time and I was coming to life for the first time while the world was stepping down during the pandemic, during yeah. the early weeks of the pandemic. I was healing, I was um, doing, um, I was doing so well. I was really sticking to my spiritual practice. And this was when I decided to start choosing this as a way to help other people. This was when I felt that it was time for me to tell my story. Mm-hmm. It was time for me to, back then I was, uh, so I had started doing tarot readings because I discovered tarot in, I want to say 2015. And um, I don't do it from like a psychic, I'm going to tell your future perspective. It's more like introspection. And people were coming to me and I felt like I was coaching them. I was giving them actual life coaching using tarot cards. And so I decided, um, why not pursue this? Why not seek a coaching certification? And those can be expensive, but um, because of the pandemic, one institute that I had identified, a school based in the UK, had offered certifications at a price that was so slashed down, I could afford it. So I got my certification, my spiritual life coaching certification, and I really felt drawn to working with people who had been in similar situations, in situations of adversity, and situations that are not recognized by society, because it's not just Middle Eastern society, it's American and um, quotation marks, Western society in general, you still don't accept that parents can be abusive, especially not mothers. Mm-hmm. Society, the society we live in accepts that fathers can be abusive. When I was conditioned to tell people that my father was abusive and this is why we came to the States, nobody questioned that. But when I told people that I had no contact with my mother because she was abusive, everybody, no matter the culture, ethnicity, religion, everybody that I encountered was telling me, oh, but what if she had some trauma? Why would you, uh, why would you not talk to her? I'm sure your mother wants the best for you. And I'm like, no, she doesn't, this is not the behavior of somebody who wants the best for their child. And some people were like, maybe that was tough love. And I'm like, no, that was not tough love. That was, um, that was hate. That was trying to um, get your child killed. That was trying to eliminate, uh, something or so, or someone who you could not uh, profit from anymore. So I really want to bring awareness to the fact that mothers, just because you had a baby or you adopted a baby does not make you a saint mm-hmm. and it does not eliminate any issues that you have not worked on before you had a baby. And I am right now, I'm in a relationship with my life partner. We want to have kids. We already have decided names for them, but I know right now that I'm not ready to have a child. I'm 30 years old and I need to work on myself way more through therapy, through um, inner child work, spiritual work, practical work before I am ready to have a child and before I'm ready to bring a child into this world. So I, um, so yeah, this is what I do now. I am rebuilding a platform. Uh, I wrote a book that I'm getting ready to publish um, this uh, this spring, I'm thinking June. Yeah. And in that book, I not only tell my experience, but I also share practical 
um, information on how you can walk away from any situation of adversity, not necessarily abusive environments, but also toxic environments. That's what I refer to as adversity. And how you can not only walk away and survive, but also build a life that makes you, um, that is worth living and that makes you happy. So, um, yeah. I just wanted to ask a, maybe a couple of clarifying questions. Um, sure. Thank you for sharing it with yeah. It was really moving. Um, the house in the states that you were living in that you kept going back and forth how many relatives were living there uh there were several adults depending on the time that i was living there and your mom was living there uh for the majority of the time yeah up until 10 years ago okay yeah, yeah. i know it's hard to break away so mm -hmm. Especially when you don't really have a solid place to go. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was extremely difficult, and I couldn't be more grateful that things within a couple of weeks um, in twenty nineteen, fall of twenty nineteen, I went from uh, not knowing where I was going. Um, I had a cat back then because when I lived on my own before I went back to that house once again, I adopted a cat and she is the love of my life. She's the cutest baby in the world. <laughs> I have another cat and a dog now, but um, <laughs> she was really what helped me hold on, especially right after my dad passed away. Yeah. I was I was fighting for her. I was trying to hold on and get something better for her. And so I remember in the fall of 2019, I was um, driving away because something that happened that made it clear I could never go back to that house. And I had no idea where I was going to go. And I went to stay with a friend, a male friend, who I thought would have my back. I thought it would be a safe place to be. I stayed with him for like one or two days. And the same night, he started asking me for sexual favors. Uh, he exposed himself to me um and i was like oh my goodness this is not safe at all i need to get the hell out of here yeah and then i found another person to stay with and she um she i guess that i thought that she would see me as a friend but she made it very clear that she was an anglo-saxon woman and i was an immigrant and in her view i was there to clean her house and she demanded that I clean her house, which was filthy. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going somewhere else who I ended up staying with a spiritual mentor, quotation marks, who I thought would have my back, who made me call her mom. And she ended up being the craziest person I had ever stayed with. As in, let me, let me go back over that. Let's not use the term crazy as um, she ended up being toxic. She ended up being emotionally abusive. Within a couple of weeks, it was the same cycle of me being with my mother. She ended up behaving in even a more chaotic way. Mm -hmm. And when I walked away, she started a smear campaign against me. She was uh, really jealous that I had um, a thorough practice going and that people were taking me seriously because I was not like, oh, I'm psychic, oh, I'm going to tell you your future, but I was using it more from a secular, um, down to earth. Um, this is just for introspection. We're not going to involve any woo-woo stuff in there. And people, people were liking that approach and she could not tolerate it. So mm -hmm. that was chaotic. 
And then after that, I went somewhere else. And that was when I cut out all my relatives. I went somewhere else and this was a good place. And from that place, I started blossoming and I started um, really picturing what I wanted in my life and how I wanted my life to look like and the relationships that I wanted to have. And um, then I ended up being in a committed relationship with a wonderful person and eventually moved in together. And um, everything ended up working out. And for the longest time, I was so afraid that um, something would go wrong. The first few months, I was like, something's going to go wrong. I'm going to end up homeless again. These, this is too good. People are not good to me like that. Something bad is going to happen. Somebody is going to die. I was always in that fear-based yeah. <laughs> state of mind, of, which is normal. It's absolutely normal. Um, I don't believe in toxic positivity or anything like that. So it's normal to be in a state of fear, especially when for 27 years of your life, that's all you've known. Um, and then the first year went by and everything was okay. And the second year went by and everything was okay. Everything was even better. Mm -hmm. And everything kept getting better and better. And my life is not perfect today, but when I look at where I was 10 years ago, when I was even four years ago, it feels like a miracle. So I couldn't be more grateful and more blessed. And I hope that everybody who's listening, who is in a situation that they want to leave is, uh, is going to at least hold on to some kind of hope that it's possible. Yeah, yeah I, I remember when I first got into a safe place, it almost felt um, more terrifying because I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And it was like the chaos was more, I was more used to the chaos than I was um, peace. And when I finally had peace, it felt... Um, unsafe. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I kept waiting for, you know, like what I'm sure yeah. you probably experienced. And it's mm -hmm. like, you're kind of going along, like what's going to be the last trigger, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and then when you actually are finally there and it doesn't happen, you're kind of like, oh, like, I don't actually know how to live in this. I got to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is so true. I love how you put it. Let me ask you something. Um, when you finally realized that you were somewhere safe, how long, I'm guessing, like, did you have any sleep or issues with sleep at yes. first? And did, did those issues, like, get better with time? Yes, they absolutely did. So I was so used to not being able to sleep well, because that's a lot of the time when my abuse would happen, um, would be, you know, at nighttime. So I struggled so much with insomnia, like brutally, brutally bad insomnia. And I, for, for a while, I, I worked a lot. And, and having that like kind of workaholic thing, um, I would work until I was completely exhausted and then I could sleep, but I still could only sleep about three hours a night. Wow. Um, and that was really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, then for a while, I had had another traumatic incident happen um, where I was uh, sexually assaulted 
And I was supposed to be in a safe place when I was sexually assaulted. And with that, I couldn't sleep unless I was drunk. So that was a, that was a season. And I, I, I went um, into a process where I was like, okay, I can't live on less than three hours of sleep a night. And I can't drink myself to sleep every night. Um, and I actually went to uh, prayer and um, was working on uh, some of those things. And, you know, when you're supposed to be in a safe place and you've had this background of um, places aren't safe <laughs> and, and stuff like that, it almost triggers that all over again. So even though I had been out of unsafe situations for a long time, just that one piece of something almost seemed more insurmountable than all of the rest of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like that one last thing where you're like, I thought I was out of this. I thought this was done. I thought I'd moved on. Um, I thought, you know, that I, I'm not a victim anymore and, you know, things were going to be okay. And, um, it took me, it definitely took me a while, but it was like um, a lot of very uh, intense and focused prayer, um, being able to actually look at decisions that I had made in my life, like where I was working, does this type of work line up with um, where I want to be and what that looks like. And for me, um, I really believe that, you know, the Lord has given us purpose Mm -hmm. and uh, talents and abilities. And um, the kind of work that I was doing really didn't honor that. And it was almost pulling me out of um, a healed mindset state. And um, the type of work I was doing is uh, I was working in banking and it was right around um, 2008 when the financial crisis happened. Mm -hmm. And they had just rolled out reverse mortgages and I had sold a reverse mortgage to a couple who uh, the husband had cancer and they needed it for his treatment. And if they didn't get the reverse mortgage, he wouldn't be able to afford the treatment for his cancer. And the doctor had told him that this treatment, you know, would, would save his life and he could have up to like 30 more years or something like that. And he didn't. And he got the treatment and he passed in six months. And the way that reverse mortgages were uh, back then, as soon as one spouse died, the total of the loan was due in full in 30 days. What? So oh my gosh. It not only did this poor woman lose her husband that she thought she was going to still have a future with, um, she also lost their home. And now oh she was homeless. And it was like, you know, she was like 60 years old and I was like, I can't live with myself. Um, I can't live with myself being the reason that she doesn't have a home. So um, that was kind of coupled in with, you know, this other assault. It was, it was a rough season there for a while. So I had to intentionally kind of build back up um, the ability to sleep again over time, you know. So now I, I do want to say that does come. It does get better. <laughs> like you are going to be able to sleep again. 
um, it will be something that builds. So even if you're in the process of that right now, <laughs> like it, it comes and it's, it's part of, you know, your body um, being able to build up those sleep cycles over time, mm-hmm. you know? So at first I could only have one sleep cycle and then I could add a second sleep cycle. And now I can sleep, you know, a full eight hour night and be completely rested. But that is wonderful. That is beautiful. I, I think for me, I was trying, I was writing one of the chapters in my upcoming book is about the healing process. And healing is complex. It's difficult to explain how it happens. I think it's a lifelong process that looks different to everybody. But I wrote that one thing that I knew for me that I was healing was that I was actually sleeping properly. And I was sleeping like a baby. My partner tells me that I snore like a rhino. And I'm like, okay, but they are cute. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but I was actually sleeping. And while I was living in that environment, my sleep cycles were almost inverted because I could never sleep at night. And uh, sometimes I would get some sleep during the day. Sometimes I couldn't. And um, they would use that against me. Another thing that they used to tell everybody that I knew that, oh, she's mentally unstable. She doesn't sleep properly. Um, And uh, there was a lot of things that caused me anxiety around sleep, even when I was little. Um, Some things that my mother would say um, basically convinced me that, like, if you sleep, you can die in your sleep and never wake up. Um, So it was very... um, I used to have sleep paralysis, lots of sleep issues. And now for the most part, I sleep like a baby, unless I've had caffeine too late in the afternoon or unless there's a lot that has happened or if I'm not doing, for whatever reason in my life, something is causing me stress or anxiety. Um, I just put on a TV show and listen to it until I go to sleep, until I fall asleep. But um, that's how I, um, that's how I know that my healing process is going well. It's, Sleep is one of the most important things. So, yeah. Um, when does your book come out? Did it release date? Uh, yes, I intend to release it on the 14th of June. Oh. And it's going to be available for pre order pretty soon, I want to say, uh, sometimes in March. Uh, I have a wonderful, I have a friend who is a wonderful graphic artist, and she is creating a cover for the book. And I am so excited to see it and to bring it into this world and to uh, share it with everybody. So, um, so yeah. And do you have a title? Yes, the title is Empowered. Uh, let me actually, <laughs> let me find you the uh, subtitle, I guess, um, okay. because I don't have it by heart, but uh, just give me one second. <laughs> Second. And is it going to be available on Amazon, I'm assuming? Yes, it's going to be available on Amazon. And um, I'm thinking of making limited edition hardcover copies available on my website that would be signed. But it's uh, mainly going to be available on Amazon as a ebook and a um, paperback. Okay. So, yeah. And there's also going to be a companion journal and uh, work uh, workbook. Okay, great. Yeah, with journaling exercises and activities and fun things. Um, that's fun. That's 
Give me, yes, I know it's sorry. Um, just give me one second so I can give you the full title of the book. So the book is going to be called Empowered, Healing from Abuse and Adversity, Taking Your Power Back and Rebuilding a Happy and Abundant Life. There you go. <laughs> Yay. Great. I love it. Thank you. Well, something to look forward to. Thank you. That's awesome. No, we were very excited and um, we're so grateful to have you on and for sharing your story. And, you know, I think it's really important that we understand that just because somebody hasn't had um, a similar experience to us or just because, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, initially grow up in the States doesn't mean that um, their family was unsafe. And I, I like that you kind of preface that with, you know, there are very good, you know, family structures in, you know, the Middle East. There's all these great, you know, cultural things that, that do happen there too. And we want to honor that in that part of the world for um, the healthy family structures that they can have, just like we hope to honor the healthy family structures that we have here in the Western world. And, yeah. you know, we learn the ones that aren't. <laughs> So. Thank, you. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you so much, Sophie. It's been amazing having you today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me and thank you for holding space for me to share my story. I Absolutely. appreciate that. Thank you. Dixie and I are so excited to give a shout out to Willie P and to share his message that he is excited to be an anti-trafficking advocate as one of our um, premium membership patrons. If you would like to learn more about how you can have your name shouted out as one of our anti-trafficking advocates, visit patreon.com forward slash bring freedom org in order to join the fight and to help us get uh, anti-trafficking education materials into classrooms around the United States. Thank you for joining us for the Persons with Lived Experience podcast today. I hope you're enjoying season three of these inspiring stories for unprecedented times. Please share with your community so together we can make more ripples to create waves of change.